listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is a Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so, so thrilled to welcome Dr. Robin J. Hayes to read from her new book, Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power, in a Diaspora Underground, followed by a conversation with both of, both of us after. Dr. Robin J. Hayes attended St. George's, an elite New England boarding school, and studied at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. After graduating, she collaborated with veterans, clergy, and soccer moms to lead dozens of humanitarian aid caravans to Latin America. Later, she studied at the Sorbonne in Yale University, where she earned a PhD in political science and African-American studies. As a professor at Williams, Northwestern, and other prestigious colleges and universities, Robin wrote, produced, and directed the award-winning documentary, Black in Cuba, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. She's published essays in the Atlantic and received funding for her work from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Ford Foundation. Robin's currently a staff writer on a forthcoming television series from the producers of Transformers, The Shield, and Devils. A surfing and contemporary art enthusiast, Robin lives in Santa Monica. Robin, I'm so happy to have you on. I'm so excited (laughs) for this episode. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime fan of Skylight Books and it's lovely. For all the listeners, I want you to know we just had a, we are just, we, we're already fast friends. We've already had a (laughs) full conversation beforehand and I was, and so we were like, wait, we should stop and let you guys be involved in this. So I just want you to know to be so excited for this episode and I'm already excited for our conversation. But before that, Robin, you have a reading to share with us? Yes, I do. This is my first uh, public reading of a book I've written. This is my first book. So um, forgive any uh, nerves and trespasses, but um, yes, I will be reading from... Uh, you know, there's, it's a narrative history book, so there's no spoilers in history. We all know how it turns out. Right. <laughs> so, yes. so I'll be reading a little bit um, from the conclusion, mm-hmm. which gets into the legacy of African independence and Black power on mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think that would be a great springboard for our discussion today. Um, so yes, so this is from a section of the epilogue called uh, Footsteps. Although African independence and Black power weren't able to fully actualize their goal of complete self-determination, today's generation of social justice activists appear to be taking cues from their limitations and the best of their examples. The Black Lives Matter movement, or BLM, was founded in 2013 by three openly queer Black women activists, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Khan Cullors. It began with a hashtag, Black Lives Matter, and helped coalesce online discussions about the acquittal of white Latino George Zimmerman and the killing of unarmed teenager Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. The still controversial assertion for some that Black Lives Matter and the millions of social media impressions the term and hashtag have made articulate the frustrations of an entire generation about the continued but often denied reality of racial injustice. A misleading discourse about America being post-racial had enabled liberal indifference to anti-Black police misconduct. School to prison pipelines have been enacted and well-funded 
in segregated public schools while teachers struggle to acquire basic supplies for their classrooms from their meager wages. Microaggressions in workplaces, the healthcare system, and public space remain facts of Black life in spite of the concessions won by the social movements for civil rights, Black power, and African independence. BLM has helped the US and other nations understand that in spite of elites supporting a Black president, Barack Obama, whose father was an African independence activist, or welcoming a Black duchess, such as Meghan Markle, or declaring a society colorblind, which is what's happened in France, white supremacist policies and practices continue to restrict the life chances and choices of Black people throughout the world. In this Black Lives Matter cycle of contention, there is already evidence that the movement has sought transnational connections due to their frustrations with domestic elites. These frustrations exploded in 2014 during the supportive international response to the rebellion that followed the police killing of unarmed teenager Mike Brown. That rebellion was known as the Ferguson Uprising. Out of this uprising came a number of national demands including, quote, the demilitarization of local law enforcement across the country, repurposing of law enforcement funds to support community-based alternatives to incarceration, end quote, and the development, legislation, and enactment of a national plan of action for racial justice by the current presidential administration. In spite of the cascade of support enjoyed by the movement and expressed vigorously via social media, federal federal, state, and local authorities made little or no progress toward these demands. So, following the examples of the Organization of African American Unity, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Black Panther Party, and African Independence Movements, BLM participants appealed to the United Nations for international intervention in 2016. Testifying before the UN, co-founder Opal Tometi asserted, in the footsteps of many courageous civil and human rights defenders that came before, I look to this meeting to be a forum for meaningful dialogue and action. Indigenous press institutions and the Black Lives Matter hashtag also enabled activists to engage across national borders. BLM chapters have emerged in Marseille, Brussels, Johannesburg, London, Birmingham, Berlin, Amsterdam, and other international cities in response to racially motivated violence and police shootings, which are international in scope. It appears this new cycle of contention reflects the patterns of migration from Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean to Europe, Canada, and the US that occurred in the late 20th century. Black power and African independence developed connections based on an understanding of the impact of the transatlantic slave trade on people of African descent born in the US. However, Black Lives Matter activists are frequently first or second generation descendants of Black immigrants who have homeland relationships to Europe, the Caribbean, and or Africa. BLM also embraces the diasporic intersectional approach to achieving racial justice that Black power and African independence began to develop but did not quite embody. Protest chants and social media posts in support of BLM have also exclaimed, Black trans lives matter, Black women's lives matter, Black immigrant lives matter, and Black queer lives matter. They've done this to indicate how the movement's understanding of Blackness embraces its more vulnerable members. Con Colors explained, we aren't going to give up parts of our community in an effort to save some of our community. It's either all of us or none of us. The emergence of Black Lives Matter as a transnational intersectional movement suggests that another diaspora underground is in the making. In 2020, another wave of protests erupted throughout the US and internationally in response to the police murders of unarmed George Floyd in Minneapolis, unarmed Elijah McClain in Aurora, Colorado, and unarmed sleeping Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. The gruesome reality of white supremacist violence against protesters from all backgrounds, as well as towards victims of police misconduct, this violence often captured on digital video and disseminated instantly via the internet, also spurred more difficult and productive dialogues about the continued realities of anti-Black racism at school, at work, in interpersonal relationships, and in the healthcare system. 
More than ever, dominant institutions ranging from Netflix to Ben and Jerry's have directly proclaimed Black Lives Matter. Among white communities, candid conversations and trainings about white privilege, white fragility, and the best practices of allyship are increasingly popular online and in person. However, BLM activists continue to experience the discrediting, violence, false arrests, and efforts at co-optation experienced by African independence and Black power. Some community members question whether protesting or voting are worth it. Understanding that this new diaspora underground is one of many, which were created by the total commitment and profound sacrifice of people who came before us, dawns some of us into believing change is not possible. It's fair for young people who are newly woke and those of us who have long been aware of the disappointments, incarceration, exile and assassinations that often greet racial justice activists to be skeptical. How do we know that a diaspora underground is anything more than an adventurous loop that traps black people in the vain hope that white supremacy can end? Along with sit-ins, now referred to as occupations and mass demonstrations, a popular action during the era of black independence and black power that has made a comeback during this BLM cycle of contention is the raised fist. While this act of solidarity by racial justice activists was and continues to be distorted by the mainstream media as aggressive or defiant, in fact, the raised fist, sometimes covered in a black glove, is and always has been a form of salute. A salute to everyday black people throughout the African diaspora who must use their resourcefulness, wit, and grace to survive against the overwhelming odds created by white supremacist policies and practices. A salute to ancestors like Ali Lapointe, Patrice Lumumba, the four little girls in Birmingham, Alabama, and Malcolm X, who gave their lives in the past so that today's struggle is possible. A salute to those who remain in exile, in prison, or on the ground as indigenous leaders, the folks who, according to SNCC facilitator Ella Baker, work on a regular base outside of the limelight to cohere and uplift their communities. A salute to the miraculous diasporic splendor of Black culture and the ways in which it helps us find joy, the ways in which it helps us find joy, community, and self-love in spite of white supremacist violence. The salute remains a powerful and unifying act because Black suffering and excellence are so often made invisible by the negligence and hostility of dominant institutions. In researching this book, I have been fortunate enough to walk in the footsteps of African independence and Black power activists. I visited archival collections and had the opportunity to interview dozens of survivors throughout the US, Ghana, South Africa, and Zambia. Immersing myself in their legacy and witnessing its direct impact on anti-racist activism today has cured me of my skepticism and alerted me to my responsibility. Diaspora Underground's ability to facilitate innovations in social movement ideas and tactics, exchanges between activists in emancipated spaces, and sustained transnational engagement from which new cycles of contention can emerge is not solely reliant on the work of social movement activists. It also requires support from committed indigenous institutions and constituencies. The force of anti-racist activism is not a mystical giant in the hillside over which we, everyday community members and allies, have no control. On the contrary, the foundation for observable social change that a diaspora underground creates demands our cognitive liberation. Cognitive libera liberation is the faith that a, world, a better world, I will start that again, demands our cognitive liberation. Cognitive liberation is the faith that a better world is what we deserve, possible, and on her way. It also requires our willingness to use concrete action as an indicator of that faith. Kwame Ture, who's also known as Stokely Carmichael, his call for black power was so powerful because of the crowd's response on that warm night in Mississippi and the responses of so many crowds afterwards. It was also amplified by the willingness of the black press and historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs such as Howard and Spelman, to help clarify the meaning of this message, although it was distorted by dominant institutions. 
Similarly today, the success of Black Lives Matter in making our dominant institutions more inclusive and less violent, a change that positively impacts everyone, will depend on all of us. So, dear readers and listeners, I conclude by asking you to consider how you can salute the Black radical tradition and help construct this new diaspora underground. In addition to raising your fists to see and be seen, are you willing to show up at mass demonstrations and help register voters? Are you willing to fill out yet another digital petition and email a representative or police chief? Are you willing to support Black studies, curricula and schools, the scholarship funds of HBCUs and Black-owned media to participate in and help construct emancipated spaces, to become an Indigenous leader against racism on your block, in your house of worship, or in your social circle. Only concrete action can buoy our faith in the possibility of change. The freedom, connections, and visibilities that the African diaspora enjoys today is proof that organizing works if we work it. Wow, a powerful conclusion to a wonderful book. And how are you? How are you? I'm how okay. Are... <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, um, the more uh, peaceful and joyful I am, the more mm. I am a crier. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So I think there's just, you know, something is happening to me in midlife where I just feel so much more open to my emotions. And so when I'm, I'm moved by something, the tears just come, but I am okay. Do you think that it's peace? It's like some sort of like inner peace and hope or yeah. like, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's, I, I'm happy for you that you can, you know, access those emotions, but also like, you know, you feel that movement to, you know, just be so free in how you feel. And that's, I mean, for black people, that is huge. And I mean, some may say it's a new construct for a lot of black people to be able to be open to express their emotions because a lot of history has stopped us from doing that. But you know, I absolutely, I was raised, um, and I talk about her in the book, I was raised um, by, in part by my grandmother who you know, grew up in the Jim Crow South during the depression. And she was hardcore, you know, tough as nails. And she definitely was, you know, she and my grandfather raised us to be, you know, you've got to be tough. You, mm-hmm. you take your licks and you keep going, you persevere mm-hmm. no matter what. And I understand that that was advice that came from love and it's advice that many of us get. Um, so, yeah, so I, I understand that my grandparents gave me that advice to be tough and persevere at all costs out of love. And that was partially how they were able to help me take advantage of opportunities that they didn't have, you know? And so, uh, so I understand it, but also, you know, that is not advice that you can, you can live by. We can't live hard on defense, on guard, to paraphrase Anita Baker, 365. Yeah, so we, I found, you know, we can't live on guard with our defenses up 365 days of a year. It's too, um, it's not sustainable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason that many of us in, in our Black communities, like, struggle with stress, chronic stress-related illnesses, because we are not only subjected to additional stress, but also we are often conditioned in our cultures that it's, we can't, that we're not allowed to take care of ourselves, that we're not allowed to feel sad, that we're not allowed to experience grief. And Mm -hmm. we go from, you know, one thing to the next, fighting, fighting, fighting. And so I found that, you know, I still have my willfulness to persevere. I still have my strength, but Mm -hmm. I, also feel free to detach with love from people and environments that don't don't share my values you know i don't feel like i need to change everyone to help and i'm just helping i'm just one of many to help build the world that we need and i found that that has allowed me to be much more open to all of my emotional experience and to be more compassionate and caring towards others too and i mean that's 
that's the future, I think, for a lot of um, Black, just the future for a lot of younger Black people like us um, to, like, you know, be able to access our emotions and be, you know, because I feel like, and correct me if you disagree and I'm wrong, but a lot of being emotional and being able to be openly emotional was this like thing only available to white people because we had to we had to relearn how to be emotional because of like just the tortured past of black people and how we had to hide it for fear and for um for fear and for our own safety and now it's like it has to be relearned where white people didn't have to have that to have that um, stress and have that uh, fear like we did. But like, and now that it's happening, people, especially white people are like, oh, they don't understand that. They don't understand how we didn't, we weren't able to do that. And there's been a lot of, I mean, growing up, I've had a lot of people in my life be like, oh, why do you act like this? Why are you acting so like removed from things? And uh, why are you, why are were you raised to not be like able to express how you feel and all, all these things? So I feel like, you know, just us being able to even have this discussion about this is just so monumental. And I feel like a lot of non, non-Black and non-people of color need to understand that as well understand that we are because of white oppression we are at a disadvantage there so we need to like it needs to be noted and you know yeah, treated. It, it, your your perspective on this is so interesting because i think it's 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 two distinct but related things mm. at play i think one you know, white settler colonial culture is also a culture in which feelings are policed, in which yes, people are not allowed full authentic self-expression, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, you know, it's very much a discipline and punish type of culture where everyone is measuring themselves based on their ability to dominate and control others and nature. Mm -hmm. Right. So I mean, this is the culture that gives us a definition of masculinity that is about being predatory, being, um, you know, uh, being hostile, being able to be violent against other men, you know, and women, um, and the environment, you know, um, and so that is not a culture in which care and compassion has been truly valued, although we have so many representations in mainstream film and television of white saviors, of of the ideal family, but I think for the for me, you know, living growing up outside of that, once I started went to boarding school and and mm -hmm. I started to be you know uh, have friends you know with white families, mm -hmm. I began to see like oh no that is not how white people are living either, right? Like there is yeah. a lot of abuse, there is a lot of self abuse, there is a lot of addiction mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. these homes too, in the nicest homes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think part of, so there's that challenge that our mainstream culture has not been mm -hmm. caring of mental health. Our mainstream culture is not caring and compassionate, yet pretends to be, mm -hmm. and that can be very confusing. And yeah. then at the same time, um, as people, as Black people, we are subjected to so much trauma because of white mm -hmm. supremacist violence that right. It's difficult to get out of crisis mode to even have the space to process. Right. And I think, you know, we have had, we have our, you know, spiritual practice, we have our cultural practice. And I think mm -hmm. that has been the space for feelings, right? Yeah. Not so much, you know, always like an interpersonal conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But right. definitely our culture, you know, from, you know, before the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. has a strong um, a strong expressive quality to it and also an interactive quality and also um, has been a space where we have voiced our desire for healing, our desire for closeness, our desire for change. So I think yes. it's there, but we just don't necessarily, like we feel more comfortable in church or we feel more comfortable, mm -hmm. 
you know, dancing in the basement to records, you know, exactly. but yeah, you know, <laughs> it's different, but I think it's, it, it's something to me that I think is very exciting now mm. and helpful now is that we're taking a critical eye to how whiteness has been represented mm-hmm. and, and understanding that that has been gaslighting even white people mm-hmm. right? um, in terms of their own lived experience and reality. I, and to, touch on one thing before I feel we should talk about your book I really want to talk about the book too which I feel like this feeds into that as well but um one thing I the last thing I want to talk about this because you talk about the um connection with uh like these these this idea of expressing yourself through church I feel like there is a movement though where a lot of younger black people are moving away from the church because especially young queer people and as queerness becomes more of a um anti-queerness becomes more talked about in the black community when a lot of it is rooted in the church and but also rooted in uh colonialism and slavery but like how how do you see the the younger people the younger black people moving away from church as like a kind of a, a commentary on how church has not been accept has not been an accepted place by all for every black person and kind of I feel like that becoming this new um, way for black people especially to say oh I don't need church to be the only way I can express myself I can do that through um, I can find that spaces especially now that uh, we're connected online and we mm-hmm. ha- are connected through um, like online spaces, but also in-person spaces and uh, being connected to the community and having black communities outside of the church. How do you think that's something that like should be also talked about in this, in an expressive way or the evolution of like open black expression? I think that there are, you know, there are the different denominations and churches Mm -hmm. and, and clergy that make up the literal institution of the black church. Right. And then there is, you know, the, uh, then there is the theology and scholarship and oratory and music that Mm -hmm. maybe started in black church that has permeated African-American life. Oh yeah. Right. So I, so I think, you know, when I talk about the church, I'm talking about both, which is confusing, right? But right. I think it's important to, to, to talk about both. And to your point of, yes, as culturally, we are understanding, um, you know, understanding that homophobia is not productive to Black liberation. It's counterproductive mm-hmm. to Black liberation. And this is something yes. that in my book, I talk about how Huey Newton, uh, you know, acknowledged in the early 70s that mm-hmm. you know, homophobia is not only you know, not helpful to Black liberation, it's an, a reflection of insecurity about Black masculinity, nothing more, mm. nothing less. And, um, and he talked about how he had gone through that and he had to check himself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as we see that more in mainstream, in, in mainstream Black culture, we see, you know, less of a tolerance for, you know, the mitigated acceptance that mm-hmm. some Black churches were only willing to offer. So lots of churches were willing to have the choir director, as long as the very talented choir director, as long as the choir director didn't talk about, you know, you know, that his his roommate was not a roommate, but a life partner, right? So there was a lot of that. And so now younger people have less of a tolerance for that mitigated acceptance where, you know, you want what I have to contribute, but you're not willing to accept all of me. And I think that's very healthy. But also there's a movement in the black church of affirming churches, which does not, in my opinion, get enough attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a great documentary by a Black uh, lesbian filmmaker named Yoruba Richin called The New mm-hmm. Black, which talks about the affirming movement in the Black church and how there are Black churches that are welcoming and affirming mm-hmm. of LGBTQ folk and even some that have LGBTQ leadership. And so mm-hmm. I just bring that up because I think oftentimes we can feel like um, you know, if we grow up in a faith and then we come out that our spiritual life is over, mm-hmm. right? In that yeah. sense, our, our religious life is over. And increasingly that is not so. Mm-hmm. Um, so there so there are affirming churches, there are actual churches, but I think also we see 
you know, going back to disco, right? So sure. much of church music, gospel music, of course it's influenced rock and roll and American popular music at large, yeah. but in queer culture in particular, I mean, when you listen to Sylvester, that falsetto is from oh. church. Like there is no yeah. question when you listen to Prince, like there is so much. So I think that there, I mean, Prince being, you know, not identifying as queer himself, but certainly a queer non-binary icon. Okay. Yes. And so, yeah. um, so uh, yeah, so I think that there's just, it's just two separate pieces. And I think to your point, we do see more of the younger LGBT community feeling free to embrace the culture, but not willing to tolerate homophobia and transphobia from the institutions. And, and, and that I think is, is important progress because if we set boundaries, then, you know, that makes a statement. Most, we may not change the institutions as much as we hope, but we certainly, are telling ourselves how we want to be treated, and right? It's, and it, on an individual level and the community level. Yeah, it's just so funny that you said black. Uh, you went, you talked a little bit about the choir directors and how like a lot of them are closeted in the church, but it's tolerated because they don't talk about it. Because a lot of me and my uh, black queer musician friends are like, yeah, in another life we would have been choir. We would have been church the church choir director. <laughs> we would have well, been yeah there directing the music in our like colorful suits every week, just, you know. And the thing uh, is, is I, I, I mean, other other folks, especially queer, queer theory scholars have talked about this, you know, even our understanding of what it means to be closeted is so complicated because people cannot, can know, right? Is a sort of willful ignorance, right? Like, oh, yeah. don't take away my plausible deniability, right? So yeah. it's like, yes. A brother can be stepping through. I'm the choir director. I have on my eyeliner. I'm in my colorful suit. I have mm -hmm. my my so-called roommate, right? And everyone can know. Mm -hmm. But if he were to say, "I'm going to the gay pride parade," <laughs> right? A man is getting on my nerves, right? Mm -hmm. If he were to make it explicit, then it becomes a problem. Oh yeah, right. And everyone knows, and I think that 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 can be even more painful than just straight mm -hmm. up being in the closet and, yeah. and hiding because mm -hmm. it's like you're here, but no one is willing to fully see you. Exactly. And I think that young people rejecting that is, is a very powerful, I find it very empowering for sure. No, I, I mean, it's seeing that has just been like, you know, it's in like, while also embracing that a lot of them, even if it's it was traumatic past for them, they're still, they're still like, this was a part of me for the longest time. There was just a recently a Twitter trend of like, what's your, what was your favorite gospel song? And black people were like, this was mine growing up. Like the, like being like the music was like, you can't, I always tell my friends, I'm like, if you want to hear real good music, go to black church. The, the best musicians you've heard in your life that are like famous pop singers can't mm. touch a black choir oh, soloist, yeah. can't yeah. touch them. But, but I want to, I want to move away from this and talk more about your book. <laughs> I want to talk about it because this, wow, what an amazing book you have written. Um, one thing about your book that really, really, really resonated with me is talking about black liberation has, I feel like become it 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 became a western westernized westernized is that the right word i think that's a, it's a, it's a word it. it's a word i'm gonna use it a westernized <laughs> like um focus where it's always been talking about it in a capitalistic way where i feel like your book does it does comment on the capitalistic nature of it but also talks about an inter international and like community way of like how community exists which i feel like you know western culture does not really rely on community but it relies on um capitalism which is inherently like a independent we can we have to like mm. um we have to care about ourselves before we care about the community but i feel like your book shows a counterpoint to that and how in history it's been proven that black liberation has to start with us caring about something bigger than ourselves and bigger than our country and bigger than our own even our own like immediate family you know mm -hmm. it talks about that and i want to i want to hear how you you know came about that and really like why you made that like a huge focus in your book well i i think you know i was definitely inspired by um definitely inspired by 
the scope mm. of, you know, the African diaspora. So mm -hmm. for people who are listening who don't know, um, any diaspora is, you know, basically a community that mm -hmm. has been dispersed over um, across countries over mm -hmm. time. So we have Irish diaspora, Jewish diaspora, African diaspora. Um, the African diaspora in particular is pretty much dispersed because of the transatlantic slave trade and then mm -hmm. subsequent forms of migration. So mm -hmm. some people were brought you know, from uh, West Africa to the Caribbean and then later immigrated to New York or London mm -hmm. you know, or Toronto, yes. right? And so that is so the Caribbean diaspora is a yes. subset of the African diaspora. So, um, so when we talk about black people, you know, we're talking about descendants of people who were brought here enslaved to the United States, but we're mm -hmm. also talking about people who, you know, live in South Africa, uh, live in, um, live in Ghana, also, you know, Michaela Cole is English, you know, like yeah. we, we have all different types of ethnicities and nationalities, language, mm -hmm. cultural practices. And so the scope of the African diaspora um, has really helped me understand the diverse nature of my personal blackness. I am African-American, I'm Afro-Caribbean, I'm Afro-Latinx and I am queer. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I felt like I had to suppress you know, or put on different faces to my blackness, depending on the audience and yeah. understanding that not only, you know, we are so many things as black people, mm -hmm. but also that when we integrate, when we work together, when we collaborate, um, that is when we have the most force in terms yeah. of improving our communities and and improving our own lives so mm -hmm. um so that was what kind of inspired me to think about you know what are the ways what motivates us right mm -hmm. to to right. exchange across national boundaries and how and 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 how is that effective how is that helpful right and i mean as a myself a uh, product of the diaspora my both my parents are uh, Jamaican and they did <laughs> move to, they went to New York and they moved from there to Connecticut and like it's just so and as a like I mean I'm raised in a fully Jamaican household by my parents my grandparents lived with us it just like yeah I had to it felt like sacrificing each time in it I feel like there's a hurt that comes with that too because I'm like I want to be I am Jamaican but also am black like in the, there's no in whenever I I always think about standardized testing where I'm like, there's no Jamaican American thing I can cross off in there when they're asking for my ethnicity. It's I'm African American, but where's my Caribbean background in this? Mm -hmm. Where is this, where, where do I, I had to sacrifice it even checking that little box. And it's just like, it's, it hurts. It hurts having to like organize the, organize everything. And as an adult, I made it a big mission of mine to like, you know, say I am all of these things. I am a hundred percent all of, like, I can't separate them. It's not separate for me. I am not 80 people. I'm one person. So it and has to. Sorry, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to no, interrupt, no, no, no. but I, yeah. I think absolutely you don't, you, you can't separate them and there's nothing to be gained from separating them. Exactly. Right? Like that's right. the thing, like actually in allowing ourselves to be all of who we are and allowing each other, right? Mm -hmm. To be all of who we are, then we can't, there's so much that we can learn from each other. There's so much that mm -hmm. we can come together and produce. And that is really something that comes through, I hope in the book is that, you know, African independence and black power, when these activists began was, you know, they both were so impactful independently, but when these mm -hmm. activists began to make connections and, and start exchanging ideas and tactics, that's when their scope and their understanding of the possibility for liberation, for black liberation, for everyone really changed and grew and improved. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think there's a sense sometimes in the United States that, you know, we're in, ethnic competition with each other right yes. and it's like yeah. if, if yes. a person whose family is from jamaica says to an african-american i'm jamaican it's like oh so you don't want to be black you want to be a special yes. kind of black it's this oh. attitude of defensiveness right and oh, yeah. same with our african siblings when people are like no but i'm not like i'm african-american but i didn't 
you know, African-American and I'm of African descent and I live in America, but, you know, my people did not come here in, in chains to the South. Oh, well, you think you're so special? You know, no, no. right? It's just facts. I'm just stating facts. We have our own struggles with things yeah. in Africa that I'd love to talk to you about. And yeah. so we have our own things or, 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 or perspective on race in Jamaica. I'd love to talk to you about mm. Once yeah. we get into the space where we can actually, uh, focus more on how we can coalesce, how we can build coalitions. I think that is, you know, a great source of power that, that we can tap into. And they were on the verge of that African independence and black power. Um, but then, you know, the counterinsurgency was too great for them to overcome, to fully realize um, what, to really kind of take what they were learning from each other and put it into action. And a book like yours, I think, is a perfect text for like one showing how it's it's been something that has been a like been a priority for um, just black culture, and how it also you know it it got turned into it got pushed aside for like to like be like a it's it's uh, I feel like I've had this conversation before in the terms of like how we put things into boxes. We love as a society put things into boxes because it helps white oppression. It helps white oppression for us to be separated, first to black people to separate themselves in terms of community like this. And it even hurts it, white people, well, white people don't realize too, it hurts them. Like it takes away their own cultural identities too. To, and it makes everything, because if everything's separate, white oppression can thrive. Versus if we all band together, like we are a powerful force, right? And I just, I mean, I feel like a book like yours shows how like we are, we need to band together and make uh, make each other like stronger in that way. And like you, you, how do, I want to make sure like you, do you agree with that? Do you think that that's something that like you set out to do with your book? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it was something that, uh, you know, I, I was first inspired to, to think of, you know, to learn more about this relationship between African independence and Black power. And I saw a great documentary, I highly recommend, called When We Were Kings about Muhammad oh, yeah. Ali and the Rumble in the Jungle, which was, um, you know, a heavyweight boxing match between him and George Foreman in Zaire. And you know, of course, he's a black power icon, Muhammad Ali, and um, and was at the time. And he was so moved and inspired by the Congolese people and how much they supported him because he had stood up to American imperialism. And you know, I don't think he understood fully the backstory of how they were living under this oppressive regime because American, um, the American government had basically undermined their independence and, and played a role in the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, their elected, democratically elected leader, which I get into in the book. But I was so inspired by his experience. I was like, you know, what, what caused this time and what happened to this time? Yes. What happened to this time when we were so self-loving um, and, so, uh, and so committed to mm. our communities and figuring out how we could coalesce. And of course, I, I learned and I talk about in the book, you know, it wasn't as idealistic as, as it seems in that film, right? It wasn't, it wasn't quite that peaceful or as it seems in like the footage and stuff that we see, there mm. were a lot of conflicts. There were a lot of misunderstandings. There was a lot that needed to be overcome, but at the mm. same time, you know, the self-love came from the commitment to struggle and right. also the belief by these young people that change was gonna happen like tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so many of the activists I interviewed, so many of the memoirs and things I've read, people were very clear, like we really believed that the revolution was gonna happen any day now. And we were fighting for that to be true. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. I mean, and I feel, I feel like there's such a parallel to that in what happened last year where we, I mean, to see, this worldwide kind of movement happen, or even in some ways like uh, this worldwide statement for so long. We, there are how many, I like countless marches around the world, countless uh, conversations happening, 
just felt so powerful so so powerful but then like I feel like a lot of us are like yeah things are going to change now things are different now and I mean I don't think that it happened to the extent we all thought it would and so I feel like you know it's in a way history repeating itself of us having to like I don't know be okay learn what it means that things didn't change the way we thought it would you know what I mean well things not changing the way that we thought it would is not things not changing at right. all no no that's fully true yeah and 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 I of course I understand the frustration because mm -hmm. you know now we you know we we have the the UN you know declaration of human rights we have mm -hmm. many anti-discrimination laws in place you know it can feel very frustrating and silly to be demanding what should already be right mm -hmm. technically yeah. it is illegal to kill an unarmed person yeah who's committing no crime that's already been handled right to quote the great yeah. Olympia Pope, from scandal yeah. right so <laughs> yes. so right so so on one hand that's technically already been handled but yet we see the video we see what continues to happen and so yeah. it can be so frustrating but i think it's very important to track and stay focused mm -hmm. on the changes that are being made you know, power yields nothing without pressure, you know? And so, yes, the pace is frustrating. There's no question, I would not argue. Mm. But, you know, there is a clear sense, I think, violates that, especially now when we live in the most transparent time ever. Mm. We live in the most transparent time ever. Yeah. Um, that there is a sense that we elites must be accountable to the masses and you know is that accountability what it should be uh, you know i would argue no is that you know but that is a big shift from 20 years ago mm -hmm. when you know again to quote the great Lin Manuel miranda and hamilton like there were rooms where it happened and people mm -hmm. felt very secure that no one would know what went on in those rooms yeah right and mm -hmm. that they were isolated from the impact and how the masses felt about what happened in those rooms. Now people know it will be on Twitter. Yep. It will, it will, be. It will be on Instagram, right? You are not allowed to just make a decision. People will not just go along with it or grumble quietly. That day is over and that changes a lot. So, yes. you know, certainly, again, when I talked to surviving activists, you know, in Black Power and African independence, mm. it was very clear Yes, they did not get as far as they hoped. You know, mm -hmm. um, the Black Panther Party, the ten-point platform. I mean, you; these are all still very reasonable demands today. You know, we want housing. We're still, you know, Oakland yeah. in particular is is having a tremendous unhoused uh, and affordable housing, unaffordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. um, they did not get as far as they hoped to go, but there is no question that they did get somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that is a value that sets the stage for the baton to be passed for other people who can keep moving. Right. And that's, I mean, God, that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. I think um, that's very much what we see happening now, you know, yeah. but in my conclusion, I, there's no question that we see that now where, mm. you know, the baton is passed and people are, are continuing to go and they're learning from the, the pros and cons and, and that's all we can do. That's all we can do, but we have to keep going. And it's amazing. Honestly, and it's amazing to see like the expect younger, younger people, young people, teenagers are taking, are using platforms that they're on to like talk about it, to like hold people accountable for things, to hold, to hold like not even just politicians, but like celebrities, to hold um, writers, uh, activists accountable for what they're saying for what they're doing for where they're lacking and where they're um compromised and corrupt and like saying this is wrong like the tiktok of it all oh my god <laughs> the, tiktok of, the, the tiktok, TikTok of, of it all, all. and yeah the tiktok of it all and how it's not yes they're holding individuals accountable mm. but i think perhaps more transformatively they're holding institutions accountable, yes. mm -hmm. right? In yeah. terms of how are you using your resources? Why are you using your resources in this way? Mm -hmm. And I, 
in in a way that I think you're I think when I'm, I'm maybe I'm pitching for your book to be uh, instead of an audiobook a TikTok book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know that is what I mean. That is you know you may have said maybe, a word. I may have maybe. To credit you because <laughs> I think you know that's the thing is I think there's definitely awesome stuff that can happen. Yeah. Probably most importantly, a sense that you are not alone and that mm. you're part of a community voice that you have easy access to. Because yeah. I think that is also part of what's transformative is that when people feel confused or they feel upset or they feel hurt, mm. I mean, that kid who just um, posted a video of his teacher, his math teacher, and yes. very, very, very yes. racist, you know, not, I don't even want to say performance of indigenous culture because it was just a complete uh, minstrel show in yeah. a math class so he filmed it and I I have had not dissimilar experiences as a student yep. before social media times mm -hmm. and I I thought it was me right and that's right. you can film that and say you know I, I think I, I felt like this was violent and everyone can be like because it was that's yep. what that was you don't yep. know we're looking at it you are not crazy mm -hmm. it's not you and yeah. I think that is very, very important to our well-being that we're able yes. to, um, to, to not be gaslit so easily yes. and to understand that we're not alone. Even if we're the mm. only people in the room at the time, in the school, in the neighborhood, we're not mm. alone in life. And I, I just think that that's something that's so empowering and important right now. Yeah. And just educational too. People are being, people are, one thing I love about it too is people are supporting, giving supporting evidence, giving historical background, giving all these things that are like, oh my God, like I've never seen, I've never seen uh, like other than like scholarly texts and like things like that. I've never seen a platform being used like this, a media platform where like, I'm like watching TikToks like, oh my God, that's it. That's why this, that's how this came about. Or, oh my God, they're talking about like the specific topic that I feel like no one has known about before, but now yeah. it's like, it's uh, And they're it's also amazing. filling the gap. Unfortunately, there's still a gap between what you can see on TikTok and what um, is being taught uh, in schools, and that may be worsening as this conservative campaign against critical race theory yes. and you know ethnic studies, African American studies mm -hmm. um, continues. So the popular yes. education aspect of it, I think, is more critical than ever. Yes. Um, wow. I think we just pitched love for love for liberation as a TikTok. <laughs> that series. TikTok series is like, I mean, it's just, I love it. Um, I love it. But I want. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I respect, um, I respect content creators and how hard they work. I feel like um, there's this kind of misunderstanding um, about how much effort it takes to be an artist of any kind, but I think mm. to be um, an influencer, the amount of work you have to do, it's writing performing and producing and um and it's just you know short form extremely short form in the tiktok sense but um but it is hard hard work and so i have so much respect for the people who are doing that and doing that for social justice and equality mm -hmm. it's just it's so it's so amazing to see we are running out of time sadly so i i have two more things i want to talk about sure. um the first thing i want to talk about is queerness in your book because I feel like especially we're seeing this conversation happen right now with uh Netflix and where this there's this conversation about queerness uh trans transness uh like all of these gender queerness being seen as a separate thing from blackness um I didn't want to like I'm talking about the Dave Chappelle's uh <laughs> Dave Chappelle stand-up sketch where it like a lot of the stuff it was it feels like um, the black, the black civil, the Black Lives Matter movement and civil rights movement, it's it's seeing as something separate from queerness. But like black queerness has always existed. It's been something. There has been where with black liberation, there has to be queer liberation. And I feel like you talk about it in not feel like you talk about it in your book um, about like all these leaders who were also queer people who did a lot for just the movement who are not as talked about and not as seen. We were talking about how James, we were talking before the podcast, how James Baldwin 
is a new conversation people are having is a new um, who's been around forever i mean mm-hmm. forever forever well, but like you know people around for so long yeah i i you know two figures um that i talk about at length in the book are james baldwin and um by rustin mm-hmm. and i think that people don't necessarily think about them as black power activists because they're more associated with the civil rights movement yes. and um, their collaborations with Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a famous photograph of them, um, you know, working on organizing the March on Washington together. Mm-hmm. And they're both gay black men. And so we're both black gay men. And so um, known to be black gay men during the time, right? It's not not mm-hmm. a surprise. And so, um, so I think, uh, they were definitely marginalized from visibility in the movement to a certain extent because of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so much of the strategy at the time, especially with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC, um, uh, was to, you know, perform a deservedness of equality. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. you know, when we see footage of the sit in movement, for example, mm-hmm. to desegregate public facilities in the South, you know, there was a dress code and, you know, the women were told you need to wear, you know, knee length skirt and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. proper shoe and your hair needs to be a certain way. And men, you need to be wearing suit and ties. Like their appearance was not an accident, yeah. right? It was all to um, show that we are trying to do something very simple, which is just to be human in public space and treated equally. And this is the response we get. So it was to show the relief of the white uh, supremacist hostility towards them versus them just trying to study for school or read the Bible or whatever it was. Right. And so, um, and so because it was a much more homophobic time, even though some people might still have these ideas, you know, a queer person could not be part of that performance mm-hmm. of observedness in the same way. That was right. the, 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 the wisdom of the time. Um, so they were marginalized because of their sexuality, but their contributions were also marginalized because they didn't play the traditional, um, or they didn't play, I don't want to say traditional, they didn't play the charismatic leader role. Um, even though if you see Raul Peck's I Am Not Your Negro, it's very clear that James Baldwin is hella charismatic, hella, you know, inspiring, and you could just listen to him talk all day, right? Um, and yeah. so, and a lot of clips of him are going around social media, and, and young people are learning about him, which I think is amazing. Um, but, um, but he wasn't, he's super charismatic, James Baldwin, but he played more of a role as a strategist um, and a supporter, and so he wasn't at the microphone all the time. He was often behind the scenes. So, for example, there were a series of quote unquote debates between him and Malcolm X at Howard University, mm-hmm. but they, James Baldwin asked Malcolm X to come and he was like, you know what we should do? We should have a debate. And so it should just be like, look at us, we're at odds. Meanwhile, they were totally friends and there was no yeah. drama, right? So, yeah. so if you see just the flyers as an archivist, if you just look at the flyers, the promotional stuff, you think, oh, they are at odds, like James Baldwin, Malcolm X. Like, they're not a part of the same thing, but in fact, they were doing this work to share the ideas and to, you know, recruit more people to get involved and start being activists. So, um, so I think that their roles as strategists is part of what kept them, you know, sort of hidden from hidden figures in in movement activism, the history of movement activism. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that that is is changing now. But also, definitely, homophobia played a part. Yeah. I mean, in it still today, we still see the ramifications of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think that there's, I mean, the what we we're talking about before the, um, the way that we can comment on it, we can hold people accountable is helping, helping to show why it's not acceptable anymore, and why that, how, and also like showing that these leaders existed and it's been it's been existed, and there's not there there has to be a space for black queer uh black queer liberation in black liberation there has to be a place for it um there has to be a place for it and i I would just take it one step further in full agreement mm -hmm. with you there always has been a place for it yes right i think Mm -hmm. that you know obviously transness is not new queerness is not new we have always been contributing to the community 
and we have always been contributing to anti-racist activism. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it must be, and so it has been, you know, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, the strides that the LGBTQ community has made and the trans community has made, which are, have not solved the issue, not solved the problem of homophobia, transphobia, not even slightly, but the strides that have been made are of no threat to anything but Black patriarchy, mm-hmm. right? And right. so I think it's important to be clear about that, that if, if Huey B. Newton, you know, an icon of Black masculinity, the one of the mm-hmm. co-founders of the Black Panther Party, was very clear that, you know, that the homophobia that he had had, which he renounced, the homophobia that he had was really about his own insecurities about masculinity and Mm -hmm. his defining manhood as being about suppressing women. And when he was able to question that and let go of that, right? He was able Mm -hmm. to understand, oh, there's there's nothing counter-revolutionary about being, in his words, counter-revolutionary about being gay. There's nothing mm-hmm. counter-revolutionary about being a woman. Um, there's nothing counter-revolutionary about the feminine, however you would describe. What's counter-revolutionary is this idea that I need to brutalize and dominate to be significant. That's what needs to change. So yes. I think it's very important. Yes, Black queer people, Black trans people, our liberation matters, our lives matter. We mm-hmm. are a part of the Black Liberation Project, but also Black male supremacy cannot be. Yeah, Black male equality can be, Black mm-hmm. men can be, of course. Yes. Black masculinity can be, that's not toxic. Mm-hmm. But Black male oppression is not the answer. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, wow. What a, what a, I, I feel like that's a great way to end that question because it's Black, uh, I, I just, I'm, I want that like tattooed on me. I want that to be like the first thing you see when you see me is that statement. Um, uh, Robin, that's perfect. The last, so the, because I know I want to get you out of here before your next meeting, but the last thing I want to say, ask you is the first, the first word in the title of your book is love. It's love. And I, there is, I, I think a huge, huge place for love in black liberation. It's in love of community, love of ourselves, love of our um, neighbors, love of our, love of the world. That's a huge thing in black liberation. And I just want to, I wanted to like know why love of liberation, one is the title, but also just so important for you in this book because I feel I feel the love in it. I feel your love of it. And when you were reading it, I feel like um, when I saw you get emotional, it was love. It was just love that we all need to. We all should be as we all should be in love with this idea of black liberation. It's it's love. It's what we saw last summer when people were getting together to do this. It's just. It, it, that's so important. Can you, um, sorry, I got a little bit emotional saying Yes, I, I mean, we, you know, to quote the great Lenny Kravitz, like, let's let love rule, you know, yeah. like that. Yes. And I think, you know, certainly the title was inspired by the activists that I studied for this book and how they were motivated by love, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was discovering a love of themselves that they had been deprived of, because, you know, they had been in racist schools or racist, you know, environments um, or discovering a love for their people because they, you know, began to see what was truly possible, that mm-hmm. the subjection that they had seen surround them was not, you know, all that there was, that there could be an alternative. Um, but it's one of the number one uh, distortions about Black liberation movements that somehow we're driven by hate or we're driven by anger or revenge. It's, it's just never really been true. It's either been acts of self-defense or acts of love. And in the case of African independence and black power, it was clear that love for community and, and, and also generally humankind, a love for peace, a love for democracy, a love for justice, that's what drove people to make these sacrifices to create something better. And um, it's just the most sustainable fuel that we can have in terms of slowly and surely 
building a more equitable and just society. Like anger, first of all, anger is basically sorrow's security, right? Like, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, sorrow security, yeah. right? Like we're angry because we don't want to be real about the sadness that we're feeling about the loss that we've endured, that our fear, whatever it is, starting from a place of love allows that, allows us to do that, allows us to hold each other in that as we work to move forward. So um, Che Guevara said, a revolutionary gives from true, a true revolutionary gives from feelings of love. He was part of the Cuban revolution. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, is just most often the case that the people who are most committed, they are coming from a place of love. And that's something that I've tried to just integrate in my own life um, is to lay down uh, lay down the guard, as I was saying before, lay down the defenses and just mm. find my strength in love. Yes. And what, I think that's a great way to end this episode, that find your strength in love. Find, um, that feels like, to go back to our earlier thing, that feels like uh, something out here in a gospel song. And I think that's- Yes, I'm just thinking like, is that a lyric in the greatest love of all? Maybe it is, but it's probably, awesome. Probably, but it's- <laughs> amazing it's i love when i thought of that i was like find your strength and love i feel is that i think that's whitney <laughs> i feel whitney in this room may right her now. spirit guide us in everything Every may the great houston your mm. spirit guide us in all things i in oh, oh now i'm gonna go listen to her greatest hits. um <laughs> robin and I'm so I'm so sad we have to end this, uh, but I'm so happy and grateful to have had this conversation with you. Um, to the listeners, please, please, please go go buy Robin's book, Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power in a Diaspora Underground. Right now at Skylight Books, it's on display at our on our um when the books release, or not the books release, sorry, when the episodes released, you could see our you could see this book right on our podcast display in the in the front of the store. Please go buy a copy. It is so worth it. It's a beautiful book. Go learn about this rich and just current history. It's like a history that's affecting us today. Go read about this and, you know, just understand where Black liberation has come from and where it's going. And Robin, do you have any of the last things you would like to say to our listeners and the book community as a whole? Well, just keep reading. That's 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 yes. one thing that has been a key part of Black liberation for mm -hmm. you know hundreds of years now. So keep reading, mm -hmm. and thank you and Skylight Books for you know just being a beacon of independent and thoughtful discourse because that's a big part of how we're going to get the world we all need. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, and that's. What a great way to what a great way to end this. No, thank you again, Robin. And thank you to all my wonderful, beautiful listeners. And you all do something, do something nice for yourself today. And know that I love you all. I love you all, because that's the greatest love of all. Another one you go. Um, no, you guys have a great rest of your day. And please, please, please come back. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>